The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1967, Part 5, June 19th through September 6th. In the United States and Great Britain, it was flower power time. The more people turn on, the better world is going to be. We were talking before about a way of being, and one of the ways of, of achieving that being is through drugs. Something like a very concentrated version of the best feeling I'd ever had in my life. It was just like fantastic. I just felt like in love, but not with anything in particular or anybody, just with everything. Just everything was perfect. On June 19th, it's reported in Life magazine that Paul has taken the hallucinatory drug LSD. Paul, how often have you taken LSD? About four times. And where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything. It's silly to say that, you know, so I'd rather not say that. Paul tells a reporter, I don't regret that I've spoken out. Uh, some newspaper man came up and he said, uh, have you had LSD? So I thought, well, I'll either be cagey here or I'll be honest. So I said yes. And it was his responsibility <laughs> for reporting it. So they had him on TV saying, why did you say this? Well, they kept asking him, did you take it? So he says, yeah. But on TV he says, well, you don't print this bit of film, man. I mean, I don't want to tell anybody ever. But see, they just asked me a question. I gave him an answer. And then uh, it was blown up. Well, do you think you have now encouraged your fans to take drugs? I don't think it'll make any difference. You know, I don't think my fans are going to take drugs just because I did. You know, that's not the point anyway. You know, I was asked whether I had or not. And then from then on, the whole bit about how far it's going to go and how many people it's going to encourage is up to the newspapers and up to you, you know, on television. I mean, you're spreading this now at this moment. This is going into all the homes, you know, in Britain. And I'd rather it didn't, you know. But you're asking me the question. You want me to be honest. I'll be honest, you know. But as a public figure, surely you've got a responsibility to lots and no, lots of No, it's you've got the responsibility. 
You've got the responsibility not to spread this now. You know, I'm quite prepared to keep it as a very personal thing, if you will too. If you'll shut up about it, I will. I mean, you know, I just spoke the truth, and it's sometimes painful. I don't know, it just seems strange to me because we'd been trying to get him to take it for about 18 months. And then it just seemed funny that one day he's on the television talking all about it. After the drug-taking report, evangelist Dr. Billy Graham says, I am praying for Paul that he finds what he's looking for. He has reached the top of his profession, and now he is searching for the true purpose of life. On June 25, 1967, the first ever worldwide television satellite link-up took place. The show was called Our World, and 24 countries each contributed a segment. The British part of the show was the Beatles, performing their new single. Here's George Martin. Well, you know, the specification for All You Need Is Love was pretty rigid. It had to be a new song, and it was going to be the English contribution to an international program, which was going out and been seen by 200 million viewers. That was what they told us, enough to terrify the pants off anyone. And they wanted it to be a live performance in the studio. And the boys never thought twice about um, the awe-inspiring thing of being faced with that. They just said they'd do it anyway. And so they came to me and said, well, will you do a score for it and wrap it up for us? And John wrote this song. Here's Paul McCartney. What happened was the fella from the BBC an organisation which I'm sure you've heard of, asked us to uh, get together a song for this, you see. So he said, well, we'll get together one with nice, easy words so that everyone can understand it. And he said, all right, then, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. So we went away and we just played Monopoly for a bit. And then the fellow said, now, where's the song? So we said, ah, don't worry, Derek. His name was Derek Burrell Davis. He said, don't worry, Derek Burrell Davis. We'll soon have a song for you. So John and I just got together thought now uh, mm -hmm, blah 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 we thought blah and I wrote one and John wrote one and we went to the session and we just decided to do his first anyway by the time we'd done the backing track for his we suddenly realised that his his was the one you see all you need is love perfect you know just for to say if you're going to say any message then that's a fine wonderful <clears throat> message to say you see so we just put that one there uh, uh, put the track down and then we did the vocal and everything and it turned into it so we still got mine ready to do for the next one which is of a similar nature in its simplicity but with a different message producer george martin i said well let's do a track first of all let's hedge our bets and so we we're in the studios and we did a basic rhythm track on john's song There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Sure is. There's nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. Johnny, it's easy. You're right, boy. You're right there, boy. <laughs> we haven't got anything in the cans. I'm ready to sing for the world, George, if you just give me the backing. And um, I wrote the uh, introduction and the tag ending. George Martin was asked by the Beatles to put together a few famous tunes to fill out the last long fate of the song. So, if you've ever wondered what they were, there's part of the Marseillaise, a Bach two-part invention, a portion of Greensleeves, and a little piece from In the Mood, with which George had copyright problems after it was released. And um, we got a band in the studio, and 
the boys performed it live. They actually sang, you know, in the studio live, and they had an audience there. Including Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, Keith Richard, Jane Asher, Patty Boyd, Keith Moon, Graham Nash, and Gary Leeds of the Walker Brothers. And Mike Vickers conducted the band in the, in the, in the studio, and I was in the control room with Jeff. This is Steve Race in the Beatles recording studio in London, where the latest Beatle record is at this moment being built up. Not just a single performance, but a whole montage of performances. With some friends in to help the atmosphere, this is quite an occasion. Very good, thank you, John. That's fine. Thanks. I think that will do for the vocal backing very nicely. We'll get the musicians in now, Thanks. and we'll do the last track. Oh, great, great. Okay. Run back the tape, please, Richard. There's several days' work on that tape. For perhaps the hundredth time, the engineer runs it back to the start for yet another stage in the making of an almost certain hit record. The supervisor is George Martin, the musical brain behind all the Beatles' records. There's the orchestra coming into the studio now, and you'll notice that the musicians are not rock and roll youngsters. The Beatles get on best with symphony men. The boys began by making a basic instrumental track on their own. Then they added on top of that a second track of vocal backgrounds, and they've just added a third track. Now comes the final stage. It brings in a solo vocal from John Lennon, and for the first time, the orchestra. Here then is final mixed track, take one, of a song which we offer to the whole world. All you need is love. All right, we're ready? Let's go for it then. Hands on musicians, please. Get them on. All right, here we go then. We'll send the tape. Are you ready, Richard? Just come. Okay, Jeff. Yep. All right, here we go. Okay, Richard. Here yeah. comes the tape. Watch it. Copies from the original package. Two, one, two.
When we finish the track, or rather, when we finish the broadcast, I said, well, obviously we're going to issue this record. Now let's work on it. So the broadcast went out as one thing, but then I overdubbed John's voice again and double-tracked it and put extra voices on and then issued the live record in that form. So it wasn't quite what went out on television, but most people remember it that way. All we need is love. It, was it a sort of real put-on and saying with the takeoff and she loves you was it just was there any real hidden psychological no, significance it was, of saying it was very spontaneous actually it wasn't the same really no. was it sub subconsciously you think put because down the old image at the end of the of all you need is love there's green sleeves and in the mood and all sorts of different right, tunes right. are all coming over the end and uh there's no fault just thought of it at the time it started she loves you on July the 1st, the Sgt. Pepper album hit number one in the U.S. and stayed there for 15 weeks in all, and a further six at number two. The Beatles' peace anthem, All You Need Is Love, was released on Parlophone on July 7th, 1967. Reached number one in Britain on July the 7th. And became their 15th single. The release of All You Need Is Love occurred just five weeks after the issue of the Sgt. Pepper LP, and yet the single did not appear on the album, nor were any of the LP tracks issued as singles. Such a quality and quantity of output was the understandable envy of all the Beatles' contemporaries. The B-side is what you could call one of their last psychedelic singles. It's a powerful piece with some fine bass from Paul and great sitar-sounding guitar from George. Did you see when you were there? Nothing 
On July 20, 1967, British jazz band the Chris Barber Band recorded the song titled Catcall. Chris Barber had known the Beatles since their days at the Cavern when it was still a jazz club. Shortly after Paul McCartney bought his St. John's Wood home in the mid-1960s from a friend of Barber's, the two stopped by for a visit. Barber asked McCartney if he had any songs he'd written that he'd never used. McCartney said he had one song the Beatles never used because it was an instrumental and offered the song titled Cat's Walk to Barber. Cat's Walk dates back to the Beatles' early days at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. According to Barber, initial sessions for the recording of Cat's Walk took place in the studio at his Marquee Club in London. Barber said the version of Cat's Walk done at the Marquee and attended by McCartney was a straightforward jazz number. However, McCartney decided the song should be done as a more light-hearted big production number with cat calls as sort of a joke. So the second version was recorded at Chapel Studios according to McCartney's specifications. Brian Auger, who remembers playing organ on Cat Call, confirmed that McCartney was heavily involved in the production of the recording. Barber also recalls McCartney playing one-handed organ on the song.
On Saturday, July 22nd, John and his wife Cynthia and their son Julian, along with Paul, Jane Asher, George and Patty, Patty's sister Paula, Ringo, Neil Aspinall, Mal Evans, and Alistair Taylor, all journeyed to Greece to look at a set of islands for purchase. Well, there was this guy called Alex, who wasn't magic, but John thought he had something. And he became friendly with us, right? And his dad was something to do with the coup that took place in Greece. So it was an easy place for us to go because he knew all the military. It's very strange, and we went there for a holiday. It was John Lennon's idea that the group and their family and friends should all live on the same island in four separate villas with a recording studio and entertainment complex. Somebody had said you should invest some money and we thought, well, let's buy an island. We just go there and drop out. The group had hired a luxury yacht, the MVRV, to take them around to look at the islands. We rented a, a boat and uh, we drove this boat up and down the coast from... Athens looking at islands and we came to this island that we arranged to go and see. Magic Alex had found a suitable island with around 80 acres and a small fishing village, beaches and 16 acres of olive groves which was priced at 90,000 pounds. Ringo Starr. And it came to nothing. We didn't buy an island, uh, we came home. On July 24th, a full-page advertisement in the Times proclaimed that the law against marijuana is immoral in principle and unworkable in practice. It's signed by all four Beatles. All four Beatles added their names to a list of signatures in an advertisement in the Times that advocated the legalization of marijuana. On August 1st, George Harrison and his wife Patty traveled to Los Angeles to see Ravi Shankar. They decided to stay on holiday in California for a few days. It was in Los Angeles that George composed a song called Blue Jay Way. Blue Jay Way is a street in Los Angeles in which George had rented a house. He had just arrived after a long flight from England and was waiting for Derek Taylor and his wife to visit. He was very tired from the trip and the time change and started to write the piece on a little electric organ that was in the house. It had become foggy and they couldn't find the house, so George continued the piece until it was finished. Have lost the way 
Patty Harrison writes in her book, Wonderful Tonight, We rented this house on Blue Jay Way and met so many fantastic people. One day, David Crosby of the Birds invited us to his place in the hills. We arrived to find a swimming pool full of naked people. Not knowing anyone or indeed what to do, we went into the house until David arrived. Come gather our people wherever you roam. Admit that the waters around you have grown. Except that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving David arrived naked and with a joint in his hand. He saw that we were not going to join in with him, so he put on a pair of shorts. I thought, L.A. is wild. Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone All the times they are afraid The most exciting of all, one evening, we were invited to meet the great Frank Sinatra. We turned up at the studio where he was recording and, through the glass wall of the control room, watched while he sang My Way, accompanied by a full orchestra. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention, I did. What I had to do Saw it through Without exemption I planned Each charted course Each careful step Along the byway And more Much more than this I did it my 
At the end of the song, he came out to hear it back and meet George. We were then ushered into limos and driven down Sunset Boulevard to a restaurant. We glided in and sat at a table already prepared with a bottle of whiskey or bourbon in front of each of Frank's crew. They were all short, wide men in large suits. I found the ones I sat next to very difficult to understand. From Los Angeles, on August the 7th, George and his wife Patty flew up the coast to San Francisco to join in on the flower power movement. As Patty Harrison writes in her book, we went to see my sister Jenny, who was living with a friend in San Francisco. We flew there in a private Learjet with Derek Taylor and Neil Aspinall to have lunch. Afterward, we thought it would be fun to go have a look at Haight-Ashbury, the district that had been taken over by hippies and was the LSD capital of America. John Lennon recalls the Haight-Ashbury scene. I was all for going there and living on the Haight, you know. I mean, in my head, I thought, well, hell, the acid's it, and this is the answer, let's go. I'll go there, you know, and make music and all that. But of course, it didn't come true. In the end, George went over. I mean, everywhere we went, people were 
um, smiling and you know sitting on lawns drinking tea, you know festivals of music and stuff. I mean, you know, that summer of love, a lot of that was bullshit, really. It was all what the press was saying, but it was definitely a vibe. I mean, in America, we could feel what was going on there, even though we were miles away. You could just pick up the vibes, you know. On the way, Derek produced a tablet of acid and asked, would we like some? Since we were going to hate Ashbury, it seemed silly not to. Patty goes on to say, as our limo approached the hate, our driver parked on a side street. We got out of the car, the acid kicked in, and everything was just, whoa, psychedelic. And then suddenly, I, I felt just this most incredible feeling. We went into a shop and noticed that all these people were following us. One minute there were five, then ten, twenty, thirty, then forty people behind us. I could hear them saying, the Beatles are here, the Beatles are in town. The crowd of people were so close behind us, they were treading on the backs of our heels. It got to a point where we couldn't stop for fear of being trampled. Then somebody said, let's go to Hippie Hill. And we crossed the road and into a park. Then the inevitable happened. A guitar emerged from the crowd, and I could see it being passed to the front by outstretched arms and handed over to George. We were so high, he said as he strummed, this is G, this is E, this is D, and showed them a few chords. Then he handed back the guitar and said, Sorry man, we've got to go now. We got up and walked back towards our limo, at which point I heard a little voice say, Hey George, do you want some STP? George turned around and said, No thanks, I'm cool man. Then the bloke turned around and said to the others, George Harrison turned me down. And then the crowd became faintly hostile. We ran across to the limo and jumped in. The crowd ran after us and started to rock the car. That was the turning point for George. We had always thought of drugs as fun, a means of expanding your mind and consciousness. What we saw at Haight-Ashbury was an eye-opener. Those people had dropped out. Turn on, tune in, drop on. You know, I went to Haight-Ashbury expecting it to be this brilliant place and it was just full of horrible, spotty, drop-out kids on drugs. It certainly showed me what was really happening in the drug cult. It wasn't what I thought of all these groovy people getting, having spiritual awakenings and being autistic. It was just, it was like the Bowery. It was like alcoholism. It was like any uh, addiction. So <clears throat> at that point, I'm, I'm, I stopped taking it, actually, the dreaded lysergic. I had some in a... In a uh, in a little bottle and I put it, it was liquid, I put it on a microscope and I looked at it and it looked like rope, it's like old rope and I thought well I'm not going to put that in my brain anymore. To counter the Beatles drug use controversy, manager Brian set out to clear the record and clean their image and at least begin a concentrated effort for a public drug disavowal. We'd been into drugs. Paul McCartney. And we were, the next step then is, then you've got to try and find a meaning then. George Harrison. That's where I really went for the um, meditation. And there's this thing called a mantra. And the mantra is, uh, through the mantra, you, you can follow a technique that helps you to transcend, that is, to go beyond the waking, sleeping, dreaming state. So I got myself to the point where, okay, I need a mantra 
uh, you know, where do you go? You know, go to Harrods and get a mantra. But then I met David Wynne, who said, showed me this picture, and he said, oh, he's coming to do a lecture at the Hilton. He's called Maharishi. So I said, okay, I'll go. I got some tickets, and then I thought, well, I'll get some in case the others want to go. Cynthia Lennon remembers. In the midst of this summer of flower power, George and Patty had become absorbed in Indian spiritual beliefs. Patty had been trying to teach herself to meditate, but was finding it hard going until she went to a lecture about transcendental meditation at Caxton Hall, held by the Spiritual Regeneration Movement. She decided to join, and in August she heard that the movement's leader, the Maharishi, was coming from India to run a summer conference in Bangor, North Wales. A couple of days before the conference, he would speak at the Hilton. George and she decided to go and urged us all to join them. On August 19, 1967, Ringo and his wife Maureen have their second son, Jason. Why the name Jason? Uh, Maureen picked the name Jason because I picked Zachary, so it's Maureen's turn. Any particular reasons for Jason? Oh, well, it's a good name. It's not meaning anything. Now, does the baby look more like Maureen or more like you? He looks exactly like Zach was when he was born, but he looks like me anyway. <laughs> Were you expecting Did you want a boy this time? Or yeah, did you it didn't matter this time, a girl or a boy, just as long as they're both all right. Now, it's just one day old. I know it's probably a silly question, but any plans for this baby? Any plans for Zach at all? Perhaps two um, other drummers? No, 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 no plans yet. It's both too young. Just let them play as long as they like then and see if they want to do anything. Do you like a larger family still? Well, I don't know. Two is sort of all right. You know, if we only have two, that's all right. And if we have more, that's all right. Everything's all right. I'm all right. How are you? On Tuesday, August 22nd and Wednesday, August 23rd, the first of two Beatles sessions at Chapel Recording Studios, an independent central London setup run by music store and music publishing company of the same name, began. These two nights interrupted what would have been a 72-day interlude between Beatles sessions. The session was for a new song by Paul McCartney, Your Mother Should Know. This was the last Beatles session before the death of Brian Epstein, who passed away on the 27th of August. Here's the session. Do you want us to do it again, George? Okay. With Siggy in mouth. should know Sing it again Let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit before your mother was born Though she was born a long, long time ago Your mother should know Your mother should know
On August the 24th, the Beatles attended a lecture on transcendental meditation by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi at the Hilton Hotel in London. Cynthia Lennon. I stayed at home, but John went with George, Patty, Paul, and Jane. Love is the sweet expression of life. It is the supreme content of life. Love is the force of life, powerful and sublime. The flower of life blooms in love and radiates love all around. And I thought he made a lot of sense, you know. Um, I think we all did. Because he basically said that with a simple system of meditation, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, no big sort of crazy thing, you can improve the quality of life and sort of find some sort of meaning in doing so. And after the lecture we went because you know that was one of the privileges of the Beatles who you could get in anywhere so we got backstage met Maharishi and um, you know I said to him uh, got any mantras <laughs> give us a mantra and he said well we're going to Bangor tomorrow you should come and get initiated we'd sort of rung on mate hey we're going up there he's great this guy are oh, you ought to come and see him you know you um, it's like a good book you'd read you try, hey, you ought to get it. I'll, get, I'll send you a copy. Sort of that kind of thing. You know, you, you ought to come. He's going to be there. Come with us. Cynthia Lennon. When John came home, he was excited. It's fantastic stuff, Sin. The meditation's so simple and it's life-changing. Along with the others, he'd been bowled over by the Maharishi's charisma and his promises of nirvana. Ringo remembers returning from the hospital and learning about a spiritual guru from India. Maureen was having Jason at the time. Well, I was at the hospital and I got back that night. It was about a Wednesday or something. And I, you know, I had an answer phone, so I pressed the tape, see what was on, and there's John saying, Oh, we just met this guy. It's great. You've got to meet him. It's fantastic. Okay. And then I let it go on. There's George saying, We went to this meeting and there's this guy, Maharishi, man. Blow your brain out. He's great. The Maharishi had invited the Beatles to go to his Bangor conference, which was to last ten days, beginning on the August bank holiday weekend. John was keen, and I was happy to go along and find out what it was all about. George, Patty, her sister Jenny and Paul were all going. 
Ringo decided at the last minute that he'd come too. Maureen had just given birth to their second son, Jason, and was still in the hospital. Also along for the ride was a young Greek, Alex Mardus. He'd been introduced to us by John Dunbar, who thought his electronics expertise might be useful to the Beatles. He soon became known as Magic Alex and joined the Beatles' inner circle, making himself indispensable both in and out of the studio. The Maharishi was anti-drugs and had explained that through meditation you could reach a natural high as powerful as any drugs could induce. John loved this idea and was already talking about enlightenment, cosmic awareness and doing without drugs, so I was all for the Maharishi's message. Perhaps this was the change of direction John had been looking for, and perhaps this time I could share it with him. Divine guidance was the goal. Truth, light, inner peace. Saturday, uh, Maharishi was going to Wales, and they'd got through to Paul by then, and everyone was going up, and so you got to come up to and see this, you know. So... Saturday I went up to Wales. So we all ended up getting on a train to Bangor for this trip. John's wife, Cynthia Lennon. And I, as usual, was trailing behind with the hand baggage and a massive policeman put his arm out and stopped me. I couldn't get on the train. And the last thing that I saw was John's head. I can't imagine what he was saying, but it was probably pretty rude about, for Christ's sake, sin, too slow again. Why couldn't you run with us? Proof that the Bangor visit was hurriedly arranged is clear from the fact that the Beatles had booked a London recording session for 7 p.m. on August 25th. On August 25th, 1967, the Beatles traveled to Bangor, North Wales. Along with friends and relatives meet the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, smartly caftaned and carrying presents and flowers at the Teachers Training College in Bangor, North Wales. Paul McCartney. How we got up there, there was a big crowd at the, at the train station, there was a crowd to meet us and we all sort of wandered through in our... Psychedelic gear. Ringo Starr. Maharishi didn't know who we were. And all these people were at the station, you know, in Wales, middle of nowhere. And he thought, wow, God, I must be making it here. Look at all these people. <laughs> and as he starts walking towards the people, they all start running past him to the four of us behind him, you know. So that's when he clicked, well, what have I got here? The press played up the Beatles' Maharishi madness. People here think of you as a saint. What is it that you preach? Uh, I preach a simple system of transcendental meditation which gives the people the insight into life and they begin to enjoy all peace and happiness. And because this has been the message of all the saints in the past, they call me saint. You seem also to have caught the imagination of the pop stars in this country. Uh, what is this pop star? <laughs> People who, sing, people who sing with guitars. <laughs> Have you anything to say about that? I find that. You mean the Beatles? Yes. Oh. <laughs> and others. I, I, I found them very intelligent and uh, young men of very great potential in life. And they, during my stay here, they'll look into the details of this transcendental meditation. And if they find that it does bring more energy and more intelligence and release from stress and strain, then they will be leaders for the next coming generation to spread this message of peace and harmony. There's a great potential in them. Brian Epstein was not involved in their latest attempt toward mental salvation and chose to stay home during that first transcendental teach-in weekend in Wales. On August 27, 1967, on that day, the Beatles were studying meditation with the Maharishi 
for the first time. Cynthia Lennon. We were all staying in dormitories at a large training college, along with a couple of hundred other followers of the Maharishi. Our room was basic, with bunk beds and simple chests of drawers. John was amused. It's different, isn't it? He said. It was. At this point, Mick and Marianne sauntered in, looking bewildered. Hey, John, what's happening? Where do we go from here? Back to school, John laughed. The introductory seminar was held half an hour later in the main hall. It was an incongruous mix of the Maharishi's regular devotees, joined by the psychedelically clad pop star elite, all sitting cross-legged on the bare wooden floor. That afternoon, the Beatles held a press conference renouncing the use of drugs in keeping with the Maharishi's teachings. Only a month earlier, they, along with a string of other pop stars, had taken a full-page ad in the Times stating that the law on marijuana was unworkable and immoral. Paul had admitted publicly that he had tried LSD, and it was well known that the others had too. Now all that was turned on its head. The press was wildly excited, but the boys' announcement had barely hit the newsstands when it was overtaken by news of an appalling tragedy. As we were heading back to our room, a reporter told us that Brian Epstein, who had steered the Beatles for the past six years, had been found dead. Also down there for that weekend, the other George Harrison, the one who wrote for the Liverpool Echo. Uh, Paul and I were talking in the uh, university grounds and there was a telephone in the room, in the doorway, just at the side of us. The phone began to ring and it kept on ringing while Paul was talking and he suddenly said, Oh, George, I'll have to go and see what's, who it is, what's going on here. Hold it a minute. And he went across there, and uh, I waited, and I just saw him take up the receiver. And then I heard him say, Oh, God, no. Oh, no, no. He put the receiver down and ran upstairs to the rooms where uh, John and, and George and Ringo were staying. And the next I heard was when he came down and said, George Bryan was found dead in his bed this morning. I said, oh, Christ, it can't be. He said, yes, he was due to come to join us today and he was found dead in his bed this morning. It's, a, it's an overdose of sleeping tablets or something. I don't know anything really of what it is. But we've got to get back. We've got to get back to London right away. The news of manager Brian Epstein's death breaks up the gathering. And then the news came about Brian, so it, it wasn't a very long weekend. I, I seem to recall it was a phone call that somebody came uh, to us in, in this place in Bangor and said... Uh, and that he died. That was kind of stunning, because we were off on this sort of finding the meaning of life, and there he was, dead. He was often lonely, and like a lot of people who seemed to have a full address book, there were times he couldn't always reach people. If he didn't make plans, you know, you can find yourself with an empty evening, and if you're used to a lot of people, and nobody answers the phone that night, he would get very depressed and paranoid and think that it was all over. And it was in one of those weekends he died. Cynthia Lennon remembers. He was a complex and insecure man. Although he had had lovers, he had never found what he longed for a stable, loving relationship. He flitted from one scene to another, always hovering on the outside. His loneliness was almost tangible. Even with the Beatles, Brian had been an outsider. He loved them dearly, 
but they all had partners and families, and in many ways looked up to him. He had remained apart from them. The end of touring had evidently left a hole in his life. In addition, none of us had known how prone to depression Brian was. It seems he had suffered from depressive episodes for many years, and he had been depressed during the months before he died. Latterly, he had rarely got up before lunchtime. Sometimes he went into his office in the afternoon, but more often he didn't, and his work had suffered just over a month before his death. His father, Harry, had died, which might have fueled his depression. His mother, Queenie, had been staying with him recently, and he'd made a huge effort to comfort and reassure her, getting up to have breakfast with her, then spending a normal day in the office and coming home to her in the evening. She had left on the Thursday, three days before Brian died. He had planned to spend that bank holiday weekend at his country house with friends, but when most of them had to cancel, he had driven back to London late in the evening. His body had been found the next day, when the live-in couple who worked for him, Antonio and Maria, had become worried. His bedroom door had been locked, so they had called his secretary, then a doctor. Eventually the door was forced, and he was found dead in his bed. Only in Aspinall. I heard it on the radio, actually, on the car radio, that he died. Beatles producer George Martin. The local shopkeeper said, sorry about the news. I said, what news? He said, your friend's died. Our friend is gone. Somebody came up to us and they said, Brian's dead. And we, we, I was stunned, you know, and we all were, I suppose. And Maharishi, we went into, well, what? You know, he's dead and all that. And he was sort of saying, oh, forget it, you know, be happy. You know, like parents, you know, smile. That's what Maharishi said. Fucking idiot. So, and we did, and we were along, along with the Maharishi trip, you know. John, where would you be today without Mr. Epstein? I don't know. Are you, are you driving down to London tonight? Yes, somebody's taking us down here. Yeah. You heard the news this afternoon, I believe. Yes. And Paul's already gone down. Yes. I see. What? It, you've no idea what your plans are for tomorrow? No, no, we'd just go and find out, you know. And just have to play everything by ear. Yes. I understand that Mr. Epstein was to be initiated here tomorrow. Yes. Mm. When, when was he coming up? Was he coming up in coming the afternoon? Tomorrow, just Monday, that's all we knew. Had you told him very much about the spiritual regeneration movement? Well, as, as much as we'd learned about spiritualism and various things of that nature, then we'd tried to pass on to him, and he was equally as interested as we are, as everybody should be. He, he wanted to know about life as much as we do. Had you spoken to him since your... Uh, since, since you became interested mm. this weekend? No. no. I spoke to him uh, Wednesday evening, the, the evening before we first uh, uh, saw Maharishi's lecture, and he was in great spirits. And when did he tell you that he'd like to be initiated? Well, when we arrived here on, was it on Friday, we got a telephone call later that day to say that Brian would be, uh, follow us up and be here Monday. Do you intend uh, returning to Bangor uh, before the end of this conference? We probably won't have time now because uh, Maharishi will only be here till about Thursday and we'll have so much to do in London that we'll, we'll have to meet him again some other time. I understand that um, this afternoon uh, Maharishi uh, conferred with you all. Could I ask you what, he, what advice he offered you? He told us that... Uh, not to get overwhelmed by grief and to whatever thoughts we have of Brian to keep them happy because any thoughts we have of 
have of him will travel to him wherever he is. Had he ever met uh, Mr. Epstein? No, but he was looking forward to meeting him. Have you a tribute you'd like to pay to Mr. Evans? Well, you know, we don't know what to say. We just we loved him, and he was one of us. What? So it, you can't, you know, I you wouldn't... You can't pay tribute in words. Did the Maharaj give you any words of comfort? Yes, well, we... His meditation gives you confidence enough to withstand something like this, even the short amount we've had. And then the thing that we've uh, got to know about... Uh, there's no real uh, such thing as death anyway. I mean, it's death on a physical level, but life goes on everywhere, and you just keep going, really. But uh, So the thing is, it's not as disappointing as it is and it isn't, you know. And the, the thing about the comfort is to know that he's okay. You? No, that's about it. Cynthia Lennon. That afternoon we drove home. In the car, John and I held hands, trying to give each other strength. Every now and then, John would mutter, Oh, Christ, why? Why, Brian? I just can't get it into my head. He was as low as he had been after Stuart's death, and Brian's passing was yet another sudden loss. Uh, the feeling that anybody has when somebody close to them dies, there's a sort of little hysterical sort of hee-hee, I'm glad it's not me, or something in it. You know, that funny feeling when somebody dies, I don't know whether you've had it, I've had a lot of people die on me, you know. And the other feeling is, you know, what, what the fuck, you know? What, what can I do, you know? I mean, what, I, I, I knew that we were in trouble then. I didn't really have any misconceptions about our ability to do anything other than play music. I was scared, you know. I thought, we fucking had it now. We just all drove back into town. Uh, confused. I mean, it was like, ah, oh, what do we do now? A Westminster coroner's court pronounces that Brian Epstein's death was accidental. He had died from the cumulative effect of bromide in the drug he'd been taking for some time. The court was told that he took drugs in the form of sleeping tablets as he suffered from chronic insomnia. The official cause of death was an accidental overdose of the sleeping pill Carbitrol. Brian was 32 years old.
his body was returned to his home in Liverpool, where his funeral took place quietly and privately. The Beatles didn't attend because the family didn't want the attention their presence would attract. Instead, we all went to his memorial service at the New London Synagogue in St. John's Wood, not far from the EMI studio. It was a memorable moving occasion, a tribute to a man we had loved and would never forget. The combined effect of bromide and carbitol, a drug used to combat severe and chronic insomnia, took Brian Epstein's life. I don't think there was anything sinister. Later there came out all these you know, rumours that it was a sort of very sinister circumstances, but I think those are easy to do after the event. I sort of went around a couple of days later and saw Brian had a butler, you know, working for him, and he didn't seem to feel there was anything suspicious, and he seemed to feel that uh, you know, he wasn't in any total black mood. It could have been, I don't know. But my feeling was that, uh, that it was an accident. I don't believe that he committed suicide. I believe it was an accident, because in those days, everybody was topping themselves accidentally by taking uppers and uh, or amphetamine and alcohol. His untimely death was a crushing blow to the group and ultimately instrumental to the Beatles' breakup. One thing everyone close to the group agreed on, the Beatles would never be the same. Especially if you knew them from those early touring days, like Jackie DeShannon did. I think it meant the end of the Beatles as it was to them. But I think the minute that Brian was not there to lean on, on many levels, I mean, there is, that is someone who obviously believed in them. And it's hard to say who believes in you after you've sold your first million records or you, you've packed your first 50,000 people in the door. It's really hard to know as a performer who is really your friend. But when Brian was no longer there, I certainly saw a different group of people. Brian's role had changed since the end of touring. Clive Epstein explains. Even in the last year of Brian's life, they were beginning to go their separate ways. I mean, they stopped touring in August 1966, and a lot of Brian's functions had early been connected with their live performances, their films, their touring, and... I think that in the last nine months of his life, he had felt, to some extent, that he wasn't required to provide the same management as he had earlier. Um, and what would have happened had Brown lived, I can't say. The only thing I do know is when, after he died, obviously the Beatles wanted to uh, develop um, them in their separate individual ways. I can't imagine where we'd be if he hadn't died, because... Uh, I just, you know, it's impossible to imagine, but because he died, we suddenly had to find out and be responsible for ourselves, which we were anyway, but we, we sort of, the business side of it was abstract then, because we always imagined, well, Brian does that and everything's fine, even when it wasn't fine, but with nobody being there, it was directly up to us, you know, to work out what we had to do with ourselves. I remember that Fred Perry started as a stagehand at the London Palladium, then turned to lighting and staging Beatles shows before Brian's death. When they lost Brian Epstein, uh, I think that was really the worst thing professionally that could have happened to them because they started to think for themselves. Uh, I don't mean they weren't capable of thinking for themselves, and obviously they couldn't go on being mock tops forever, but I'm not sure that the direction that they took was the right one career-wise, and ultimately, of course, they, they broke up. I still think if Epstein was alive, they'd still be together today.
George Martin. He was the person who achieved the impossible because um, they weren't terribly to get they weren't terribly well organized when they started. And um, they hadn't got any I mean he was their first manager. And a lot of lot of criticism has been leveled at him for um, not being more astute in business negotiations and not getting better deals for them and so on. But that's hindsight. And my view of him is he was absolutely super and that his um, handling of the group in the early stages was um, something that only he was able to achieve. If, if they'd had somebody else, they could well have been sold down the river and they may not have achieved the eventual success they did have. He did tend to lose it after a while because uh, he wasn't the most disciplined of people himself. They should remember him as a good person. Basically, that's all it was. Uh, he was just a good person. Believe me, Brian Epstein was the greatest manager ever. Thank you very much, everybody. From us here in London, it's goodbye for this week. See you soon. All the best. On August 27, 1967, it's reported in the Sunday Express that former Beatle Pete Best is working in a Liverpool bakery slicing bread for 18 pounds a week. One of Brian's final efforts on their behalf was the negotiation of an animated full-length feature entitled The Yellow Submarine. The film stars would be the Beatles in cartoon character form. The plot, a fantasy co-written by love story author Eric Siegel, and the music, several original tunes by the group. Beatles producer George Martin. And the boys didn't think it was a good idea at all. The idea of being portrayed in cartoon form was basically abhorrent to them particularly when the guy who was doing it, the only track record that they could think of was that he'd done the Flintstones. As there was no acting call for, the Beatles decided next to create their own feature. On Friday, September the 1st, 1967, John, George, and Ringo met up at Paul's Cavendish House in St. John's Wood, London, four days after the death of Brian Epstein. They decided many things, one being to press on with Magical Mystery Tour, temporarily postponing a planned visit to India to further study transcendental meditation. There was still a company to run, even if its founder was gone. He was definitely the linchpin. Um, he had a, a sort of 2IC called Peter Brown, who um, everyone got, um, let's call it, aspirations above their station and couldn't fill his shoes. Peter Brown, Brian's personal assistant, who had previously worked for him in Liverpool, took over Brian's office and did his best to deal with the business side of things. But the Beatles were unsure what to do next. It was a new, unique chapter in, in musical history, and that was it. Lots of, spawned lots of people. A bit of infighting and covering up and all sorts of uh, misguided crap went on when he passed away. It was a huge void. We didn't know anything about, you know, our personal... Um business and finances and you know he'd t just taken care of everything and i suppose it was uh it was chaos after that we were kind of managing ourselves really it was sad you know it was very sad to lose an old mate under those circumstances but uh, i don't think the major worry was oh what are we going to do now we haven't got a manager because i say we'd been moving away from that what we really decided was we had to keep on trucking Right, because we don't, obviously they'd always discussed whatever they were doing with Brian. Right, now there was nobody, there was Brian's organisation, right, but we hadn't related to that, we'd only ever related to, to Brian. Suddenly like chickens without heads, 
What are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, that's when Neil kind of stepped in and tried to figure out what was happening. On September 2nd, 1967, Paul tells the New Music Express that they will not appoint another manager. Recording sessions for Magical Mystery Tour began in earnest on 5th of September, 1967, with two songs, Magical Mystery Tour and Your Mother Should Know, already earmarked for the project, the Beatles now set about completing the remaining numbers of the soundtrack and any associated record releases. Paul, because of the death of Brian Epstein, which had only happened, they needed a leader, and Paul took it on his shoulders to not really become the leader, but to take the place to organize things. And so he was always in the forefront. I don't know how much of this I want to put out, I tell you. I think Paul had an impression, he has it now like a parent, that uh, we should be thankful for what he did, you know. But he kept, for, for keeping the Beatles going, but when you look upon it objectively, he kept it going for his own sake, you know. But not for my sake did he, Paul struggle. But Paul made an attempt to carry on as if Brian hadn't died, you know, by saying, now, now, boys, we're going to make a record. You know, and being the kind of person I am, I thought, well, you know, we're going to make a record. All right, so I went along, we went and made a record. Recording of the first new song, John's Glorious I Am the Walrus, began in this 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. session, the group taping 16 takes of the rhythm track and then overseeing a rough mono mix for acetate cutting purposes. Here's what it sounded like at Studio One, EMI Studios London, on the 5th of September, the first session after Brian's death. Wednesday, September 6th at Studio 2 in London, 
After a reduction mixdown of I Am the Walrus, Paul, alone in the studio, taped a one-man demo version of a new song. Today, alone on a hill, the man with the foolish grin is sitting perfectly still, and nobody wants to know him. They can see that he's just a fool, for he never gives an answer. But the fool on the hill sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head. Talking perfectly loud But nobody wants to hear him They can see that he's just a fool But he never gives an answer But the fool on the hill Sees the sun up in a moment, the Beatles take their mystery tour together and go solo for acting spots. Okay. Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time.
Hey everyone, Paul and James here to tell you about one of the best music podcasts online today. It's called Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Yeah, as longtime listeners of our show know, Take It Away and its hosts, Ryan Brady and Chris Mercer, are the authority on all things Paul McCartney, Wings, and the Beatles. Their five-star rated podcast walks you through every single Paul McCartney release from 1970 to present day. That's every song on every album, including singles, B-sides, bootlegs, and you will most likely hear songs you've never heard before, which is part of the fun of the show. You'll also hear old favorites from new perspectives, all lovingly placed in the context of McCartney's career and the musical sounds of their era. Yeah, and don't miss the amazing interview with Denny Lane, co-founder of Wings and McCartney songwriting collaborator, as well as a slew of other special guest appearances that give some really cool insight into the music that spans the last 50 years. So if you're a McCartney fan, you've found your new favorite show, because I know I have. Seriously, I never Never miss an episode and neither should you that's take it away the complete paul mccartney archive podcast available for download now wherever you find podcasts check it out now i'm paul kaminsky and i'm james kaminsky and we are the co-hosts of the third men podcast we are a jack white history podcast where we go over the white stripes third man records the list goes on and occasionally we do a funny voice or two So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't even lying. 